Welcome to Grace Life Church Podcast. If you would like any more information about us, please visit our website, gracelife.com.au. If you can flick to the Old Testament, we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, follow up a little bit from a couple of weeks ago. We did chapter 18 in 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19, I'm going to follow up on the story of Elijah and what's happened here and what I feel God is saying to us in this season to paint the picture. Elijah, a prophet, feels as though he is the last prophet of God and he's on the run, if you remember. And what happens is he... um, he has a showdown with, with all the false prophets and there was a showdown between his God, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and God of Baal. Fire is brought down from heaven in a spectacular fashion. Can you imagine being there for that? Fire comes down from heaven and shows that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is the true God. There is some shifting and changing, a reality check, so to speak. In the nation of Israel, 450 false prophets are eventually killed. And so you see this mighty exploit that Elijah experiences. An incredible work. But then something happens. We see Elijah move from faith then to fear. We talk about moving from fear to faith, but we see Elijah, this amazing man, move from faith to fear. How does this happen? What's going on? Lord, what are you doing? Before we start today, though, can we pray? Lord, we want to thank you for the ministry of your spirit through your word that we would see Jesus clearly and the heart of the Father. We thank you for passages like this. May your will be done. In Jesus' name, the Lord's people said, Amen. King Ahab, it says in verse 1 of chapter 19, told Jezebel, his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, By this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Stop there. How does this happen? How is a man of such great faith, seeing such great things, get confronted by a woman scorned? Oh, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Gentlemen, say nothing right now. She brings word through a messenger and she's basically saying, hey, listen, you will be dead in 24 hours. You are kaput. You are gone. You are finished. 
He then says, oh, it says in verse three, he was afraid. So fear is crept into his heart. It says he arose, ran for his life, came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. It wasn't that he was wealthy. He was a prophet and prophets were given servants. What he's basically doing is he's, he's, he's packing up stumps. He's going home. He gives up. He's leaving his servant behind. That's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Then he goes on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sits under a tree and he asks that he would die. How does this happen? We see a move for, from a power demonstration to a personal desperation. Fear. Fear was in his heart. If you're taking notes, write this down. A flawed belief system will expose you. A flawed belief system will expose you. Was it true or not that Jezebel was going to kill him? It was not true. She made a threat and he was triggered. Have you ever been triggered when someone's threatened you? They've come at you? doesn't have to be true. Maybe part of you knows that it's not true, but the enemy would use intimidation or confrontation to try to threaten you. What's remarkable, however, is that, that there was a threat previously in the previous chapter with King Ahab. Remember, he says, you troublemaker. Yes. And Elijah goes, I'm not the troublemaker. You're the troublemaker. He stands up to the king with such strength and vigor. He has such conviction and authority because he had a revelation of who God is. And yet the very next chapter, Jezebel comes, says, you're gone. And he's afraid. He has a belief system, which is flawed. Have you ever believed something that you thought could be true at the time, but you later found out it wasn't? Um, when I was a kid, my mum's not here today. I won't say that my mum told me porkies. I'll just say when I was a kid, I was told certain things. Like, my son, my son, if you don't wash your hair, you'll get nits. As I grew up, I, I found out that's actually not true. If I do wash my hair, nits are attracted to clean hair. I haven't washed in years. Another porky pie, I was told, if you watch too much TV, your eyes will go. Any parents told their kids that? You little flippers. If you swallow your chewing gum, it'll take seven years to pass through. That's not even true. I only found out it wasn't true the other day. That, that's the fact. If you eat your crust, your hair will go. I've been eating my crust for years. Lies. <laughs> if you crack your knuckles, you're going to get what? Arthritis. That's not true. No, 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 no. Here's, here's one that I believed for a little while, but then I proved it not to be true. If you pick your nose, your brains will, your brains will cave in. 
If you pick your nose, your brains will cave in. It's nonsense. I pick my nose all the time. So we see Elijah, he's told something, he's given a threat, wondering if, is it true or not, but that wasn't the extent of his flawed belief system. He was experiencing disappointment, discouragement, dejection, despondency, depression, despair. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. But we get a clue to the extent of why he wanted to die. It says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. This shows you the extent of why he was so depressed. Because he had a certain plan. And he had made an assumption that if the nation of Israel saw the great power of God, the miracle of God, everything would be changed and he could be part of the solution. But then Jezebel comes and she's like, that's not enough, I'm coming after you. Keep in mind, Jezebel was a big proponent of Baal, false gods, idolatry, false worship. She was a Phoenician. She comes in and she's still there and she's... she's She's putting a finger in the eye of Elijah saying, who do you think you are? You think you've gotten that far? You think you've done great things? Elijah then starts to, to show up how flawed his belief system was because he thinks, I'm no better than the ones before me. I'm not good enough. I didn't do enough. I did something wrong. I thought it was on me. I thought I could do it. I thought I could be it. And because I did know, oh my goodness, I am so out of it. I... That speaks to his depression and his despair. It wasn't just about his loss of life because remember, he doesn't care about losing his life. It wasn't just about losing his life. Jezebel says, I'm coming after you. I'm going to kill you. He's not just in fear because of his life because he, he a couple of verses later goes, you know what? Take me, Lord. He doesn't care about losing his life. He cares about his worth and his value. Never underestimate your value. And may it never be based upon the things that you think that you can accomplish, even if it's God doing it through you. Every single one of us, we hold intrinsic, incredible value. Every single one of us. There is not one person more valuable than another in this room. In God's eyes, we're all his children. It doesn't matter your age, your gender, your bank balance, your gift mix. It doesn't matter. You are so incredibly loved and valued by God. May we never gain our value on what we think we can accomplish, even if it's in God. Is your belief system flawed? Don't feed off the wrong word. He was given a word from Jezebel, but it wasn't just an external word that he was feeding off. It was an internal word. I'm not good enough. What word are you listening to? What word are you basing your life upon? What word are you feeding off? Because what we feed off, we become. It shapes us. One great reason why I love this book, 
It's not just a book. It's a holy book. The Holy Bible, not just any Bible, not just any book. It's the Holy Bible. It's the truth. We live in a day and an age where truth is subjective. Your truth is different to my truth. And my truth is my truth. So you have no right to tell me that I'm wrong. We call that subjective relativism. Where what is relatively true is based upon my perspective. And if you want to believe this, you can, but you have no right to tell other people that it's true at the expense of someone else being wrong. I'm I'm, I'm here to tell you. Like I said recently, just quoting what Jesus says, there is no way to the Father except through the Son. John 14, 6. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No other way. I'm here to tell you, Hinduism will not connect you with God. Taoism will not connect you with God. Islam will not connect you with God. Buddhism will not connect you with God. Sikhism will not connect you with God. Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, any other isms. It's in Jesus. It's the person of Christ himself. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. I don't care what your truth is. That's God's truth. I have certain truths that I sometimes and probably still adhere to that God is still showing up in me, that I've got to align with God's word by God's spirit. There are some truths about God I've struggled to accept. For years, I struggled with the concept of eternal damnation and hell. I don't like that idea. I don't like it. And I'll spend time apologizing for God rather than apologizing to him. I don't like the idea of God sending a son to die on a cross, a horrendous death. What? I don't, I don't know if I like that idea. We can become desensitized to it, but it's actually quite a, it's quite a big thing. But just because we like it, or not, should not change whether it's true or not. Discomfort should never get in the way from correct doctrine, correct belief. What belief system are you building your life on? Are you going to have a belief system that's shaped by what you see on Netflix or what you see on Facebook or what you read in the newspapers? Lord, help me. I want my life to be built on what is true. Amen or ouch? I love that here, we, this is so encouraging. Elijah asked God to take his life. Elijah, by the way, knows that it's not his life to take. Elijah doesn't assume sovereignty over his own well-being. He puts his hand, puts himself in the hands of God. Lord, I don't want to be around, but I, you get rid of me because I, I can't do it. And, and God's no is probably a good thing here. Sometimes God's going to say no to you and that's okay. We actually find it's a good thing. How did Elijah eventually die? Does anyone know? He didn't. In 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 2, he's taken up to heaven. He doesn't die. 
Imagine if God answered his prayer the way that he asked it in that moment. But the good thing, though, is that in his state of desperation, depression and despair, he didn't just take matters into his own hands. He placed it in God's and that's the exact place we need to be. Always when we're in a, we're going to get depressed, friends. We're going to feel moments of despair in life. I'm telling you, following Jesus ain't always easy. But in those moments, even when you know you're not thinking right, take it to God. Take it to God. He knows us better than we do. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast some of your anxieties on him. <laughs> Casting all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. So we give him our cares and we leave it in his hands and don't take it back. Give it to him. Cast all your anxieties, whatever it is. It's uh, reading on is really interesting in verse 5. It says this, He lay down and he slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord, who's the angel of the Lord here, by the way? Any ideas? Malach Yahweh, angel of the Lord, messenger of God, a theophany, in fact, a Christophany, God appearing in Christ here. The angel of the Lord, that's how it could be translated. Came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Any scholars know uh, uh, Mount Horeb was also known as Mount which? Sinai. For 40 days and 40 nights, he ends up going there. 40 is a significant number. But let's go back a little bit. So he's there under a tree. He laid down, he slept under that tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And there was an angel had prepared just cake and water. And he said, Eat. Yeah, rest and have a sleep. Gave him some more food. What was God's response to his servant in that moment of desperation? It wasn't, Snap out of it, you monkey. What's wrong with you? Did you not just see what I did? Snap out of it. In that moment of vulnerability and fragility, he's at the end of himself. God listens. In fact, the first thing he does is he touches him. That's what it says. He touches him. Oh, the touch of God. Lord, just, 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 sometimes it's just the touch that brings comfort in those moments isn't it sometimes it's just a holding of the hand an embrace a hug just a touch and that's what god's saying here he doesn't point the finger he doesn't say you are behaving like an absolute pork chop who cares about your forefathers and what's happened before why are you in such fear you absolute muppet he doesn't do any of that he just comes, he visits, he touches him. He sees the need 
for the well-being of Elijah's soul is to be with him. He says, just let me cook for you. Let me give you some food. Sometimes in our moments of feeling low and down, a good meal goes a long way. Just some food. Have some sleep. Have some sleep. Rest. He has a sleep. And then, and then again it says, a second time, touched him. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. God's taking care of his personal, practical needs. He doesn't counsel him. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, well, you've got to read your Bible more. He doesn't say, well, you need to pray more. Or you need to pop some more pills. You need to go see your therapist now. Well, what, what sin have you done? He doesn't do any of that. He just comes. He's with him. He touches him, feeds him, encourages him to sleep. Gets to sleep after eating food. And he says, do it again. You need to just take a chill pill. And we see right there, God beginning to restore Elijah. After the highest of high, we see him have a crash. It's not the first time that we'll see that in scripture. We can see other moments where mighty men of God have done mighty exploits. And it's not long after that, that they hit a crash and a burn. Or let's say Peter, he, the Peter that walks on water. I'll never deny you. And he's gone. What about David? Does many great things. He slays Goliath. He kills opposition. And all of a sudden he messes up. When he should have been at war. We are humans. We are frail. We always need God. One of the great reasons why I love this story about Elijah is because I see myself here. We all kind of want to see the fire come down from heaven and my God's better than your God and I can imagine my, all these false gods. Let's, let's meet at Optus Stadium. We're going to build an altar. And we're going to see God bring fire down. Everyone's going to see it. Imagine that happening. And then me being on the run. And then he's so despondent. He's in such depression and despair. But then God shows up in that moment. He's not in the temple. He's not on the mount at that point. God came to meet him and touched him. Never discount a gentle touch from God. Sometimes it'll just come through one of his servants, one of his angels. Some of those moments of my life when someone says, hey, look, let me just have you over for a meal. Just it warms the heart in those moments. That's the touch of God in those moments. See, the best you is a whole you. God cares about your body, soul, and spirit. He cares about your mental well-being, your physical well-being, and your spiritual well-being. He cares about the well-being of your soul, who you are. And he wants you to know that you're not alone. He's with you. He's for you. We've got to let God be our go-to healer and restorer. Let God be your go-to healer and restorer. Not your, do I have to? Healer and restorer. But my go-to. And in him being my go-to, it's not my got-to. 
It's my get to. We get to go to him. We get to be with him. We get to experience. We get to engage. We get to encounter. We get to do it. Psalm 42 verse 5 and 6. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you cast down? He's talking to himself. Hope in God. He's talking to himself. Here's a great quote I recently heard. Can we put that quote up, please? Remind your soul what it needs. Did you hear Josie Wiegand say that this morning in worship? Remind your soul what it needs. How true is that? That's what the psalmist is doing here. Cast down. Hope in God. I hope in God. And also note here that Elijah is on the run. He's looking for rest. He's looking for refuge, but he finds that in a person who provides it. Rest is not just a place. It's not just a position. It's, it's a person. It's Jesus himself. It's God. That's where our hope, that's where our refuge, that's where our rest comes from. He is our fortress. If anyone knows what we need, it's God. May we go to him first. May he be your first therapist. I'm not against therapists. I regularly see a Christian counselor have for years. I think it's fantastic to have someone external, particularly in my role, a Christian counselor I see. But he's not my go-to first. God is my go-to. God is my go-to. I don't need someone telling me, lie on a couch, tell me about all your problems since you were two and three and four years old and we go around the Marybrook again and again and again and again and we try and psychologize everything. That's not what's happening here. I think good, helpful Christian therapy can be wonderful. Godly therapy. But I think sometimes therapists can actually do more damage than good. That I can tell you. I have a friend who's a minister. He's an older minister. He... Uh, was a professor of psychology in a university in the States at a time when psychologists, when they were studying psychology, would uh, test using LSDs, drugs. And um, that's what they would do. Psychologists, they would try to medicate issues. And this is what he now says, though. He's now a minister. He says, Josh, I'm here to tell you that uh, when Jesus says, and he says, this is coming from someone that was a professor. As a psychologist, I'm here to tell you when Jesus says, I have come to give life and life in abundance, he meant it. The answer is in Jesus. And he says, I'm not saying that there is not a place for therapy. There is. But Jesus is our go-to. May Jesus be your go-to. May he be your number one, not your second or your third or your fourth option. 
when your medication doesn't work, when you're not happy with your therapist, may he be the first person. That's what we see happening with Elijah here. Are you still with me? Have I lost some therapists in the house today? So you may be in a position where you're, you're feeling like maybe you're like Elijah. You're not broken. You're just bent over. But deep down, you've got your roots in God and he's not going to allow you to break. He's here to come alongside and strengthen you. That what you go through, whether it be past, present or future, he will use for his glory. He will redeem it. Verse 9, it says, there he came to a cave. In fact, that can be interpreted as cleft. He lodged in it. By the way, so he's now gone to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Where have we, we seen this before? That there was a cleft. Moses, right? Okay. He lodged in it and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. We heard that before? Exodus 33, right? And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God hosts for the people, the Lord, excuse me, for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. It says the same thing again. By the way, is he actually answering the question? He's not. He's not. God's asking him a specific question. What are you actually doing here? Probably a good response would have been, uh, I'm on the run. I'm scared. I'm, I don't know, nothing. I don't know what I'm doing. But when God asks a question, he's trying to elicit information. And the information is not for God's benefit. It's for Elijah's. When God asks you a question, it's not because God doesn't know the answer. He's likely going into teaching mode. He's trying to teach us something. So he, what God is doing here is he is trying to get a conversation. He's trying to pull out of Elijah stuff that's in his heart. And in fact, God doesn't directly respond to this. Just like he didn't previously, when the angel of the Lord came to him, he didn't give him a big pep talk. He didn't rebuke him at that moment. And the same thing's happening here at Mount Sinai. He's saying, well, what are you doing here? We see uh, almost like a speech that's rehearsed from Elijah. He says the same thing happened twice. I'm the only one here. But it was God's voice that brought about all the change. See, liberation 
Transformation and reformation come from God's voice. Comes from God's voice. We've got to learn to lean into his whisper. See, previously on Mount Sinai, God appeared to Moses in power, wonder and splendor. Elijah was familiar with that. Elijah had seen that. So perhaps Elijah was expecting that to happen again. Perhaps he had been a little bit too prescriptive with God and how God operates. Anyone been guilty of being prescriptive with God and how he operates? Or am I the only one? Elijah ended up in this mess of depression, despair, not because God let him down. Elijah's God didn't let Elijah down. Elijah's plan let Elijah down. Because Elijah had a plan expecting God to do something. For God to show up in power, it would change the whole nation. Can I say, I think sometimes in the charismatic Pentecostal arm of God's family, to which we are placed, we place too much emphasis on the power and the loudness and the swinging from the chandeliersness of God at work. And we miss him at times in the low whisper. But if my, if, if my life is filled with too much noise, too much disruption and distraction, how will I have space to hear him in the whisper? Because it was in the whisper that then God speaks something to him which liberates him from his state of depression and despair and despondency, but transforms him and then brings transformation and reformation for the nation of Israel. This is what it says. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. Interesting, though, because Hazel, uh, he was a pagan king, and God used Hazel, if you read on later. What? God, you're going to use this pagan king? Don't put God in a box. He can do what he likes. Nonetheless, this is what it says. Anoint him to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Verse 18. This is actually really important. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Remember Elijah's speech? I'm the only one. Where are they? What was part of... Elijah's liberation and transformation, his healing, his restoration, was this very verse. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What he's saying is, Elijah, there's a lot of others that are there that have not given over to Baal worship. What you have done, 
how you have stood for me has an impact. You might feel low at this moment, but be encouraged. There is a remnant. There is always a remnant. Never give up, no matter how you feel. Even in those moments, like we see from Elijah, in those moments of fragility and we're feeling overwhelmed, what does he do? He magnifies the bad and minimizes the good. Have you ever done that before? It's so hard. What about me? It isn't fair. That's where Elijah's at. But God's voice comes to him in a whisper. And it was through that voice that he is given direction and encouragement that he's not alone to keep going. Thank you, Musos. Lean in to God's whisper. May we lean in to his whisper. Verse 11 again. Behold, the Lord passed by a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. This would have rocked Elijah's head. It would have changed his thinking because these things were, were often precursors for God to speak, but not this time because you can't put God in a box. But it, was, it says there in the whisper, the sound of a low whisper in the ESV. The New Living Translation says the sound of a gentle whisper. The New King James Version says a still, small voice. The New American Standard Bible says a sound of a gentle blowing. Can you hear the sound of a gentle blowing of God speaking? Can you hear his voice in your life? Or is it too much noise? Maybe you, like me, at times we're looking for the loud, proud, crashing sounds, the power gifts of God, and we miss him, the gentle whisper. I'm here to tell you, I did, a, I, I did an audit of my life, and I've thought about all the times where I, I've just had such a confidence that God had spoken to me. And the overwhelming majority of times, it was in a gentle whisper. Not in moments of grandeur, though they happen. Not in the fire, not in the wind, not in the earthquake. It's an overwhelming majority in those moments, waiting with him to hear what he's got to say. We're going to have a time of just waiting on him now. And I want us to lean into his whisper. Psalm 62 verse 5 and 6 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. If you're comfortable, would you just stand with me? We're going to pray and invite the Holy Spirit mindful of time if you need to go and grab your kids feel free to do it but i just want to create some space to wait on holy spirit just now can we do that together we're going to invite holy spirit to come and sovereignly speak that we would lean in and hear his whisper 
posture our hearts. You know, when, when someone whispers to you and they speak softly, what's the first thing you do? Turn your ear, you, you lean in, don't you? We lean in. That's all we're going to do this morning. We're going to lean in, posture our hearts in a way that we quieten our souls, shut out the noise. Where will you allow him and how will you allow him to speak to you this morning? May we hear his whisper. And can I just submit, whatever he says, this is so important. Whatever he says to you, do it. Do it. Elijah had to follow through on this. He obeyed. Sensitivity and flexibility is one thing, but obedience is what makes it count. Whatever he says to you, do it. If he's telling you the same thing as he's told you before, maybe it's because he's waiting for you to do that last thing he told you to do. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for the ministry of your spirit. And we ask now just for a window where we can posture our hearts to incline our ears to hear your gentle whisper, the still small voice, the gentle blowing of your Holy Spirit. Would you give us pictures or would that be scriptures? Would it be songs? Would it be prophetic messages? Would it be something audible that we can hear even in our hearts? We wait on you now, Lord. We wait on you now. We wipe the chalkboard clean and we ask for you to write on the chalkboard of our heart whatever it is you want to say to us. In Jesus' name. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast from Grace Life Church. For more information about us or any of our services, please visit our website at gracelife.com.au.